Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat, a weekly series of podcasts about happiness and work culture. Hi, welcome to Eat Sleep Work Repeat. This is our sixth episode. If you remember a few episodes ago, on the very first one, I had Sue Todd in. She mentioned Paul Dolan. Today's interview is, I'm actually going to interview Paul Dolan and talk to him about his work in the the field of behavioural economics. And joining me in the studio to discuss that interview is today's guest, John Owen. You run the decision practice, is that right, John? Uh, That's right, yeah. So it's a a behavioural management consultancy that focuses on helping businesses to build and protect their culture. So when you were describing it to me, it's sort of fascinating because it's an intersection of behavioural economics, which has been the the buzz trend of the last decade, really, you know, the Daniel Kahneman style, understanding that people aren't necessarily rational, but it's bringing that to a work environment? Yeah, it's it's bringing the notion that what behavioural science enables us to do is understand people, understand why we, why we do the things we do, essentially. That includes how, therefore, to change that behaviour, it includes how to motivate that behaviour, and how to, therefore, build a, a, a culture around the sort of behaviour you want in a business. And I think that um, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that culture is, is a vital component in building a successful business. And how did you get into that? So you, what were you doing previously? I've been a marketing strategist for most of my career. Right. A company called Dare. I was there for 12 years, which was a creative agency. Being a digital specialist anymore was not a particularly easy place to be in terms of building something that was very successful and grew very fast, but then also dealing with a slightly more challenging situation where we were in a marketplace suddenly that had changed completely and um, we had to sort of manage decline and manage change. To go from that to then work in a setting up your own culture business seems like a, a strange hop and a skip. Yeah, well, I've done some strange hops and skips before, I suppose, leaping from journalism into, into marketing. But um, the thing that really I became very clear about was that you can control very few things in business, but one of the things you can control is your culture. And actually, one of the things that saw us through in in some of the more difficult times was the very strong culture that we had. Being being able to define what your cultural values are and and overtly call them out and overtly understand and have everybody understand what behaviour 
supports those values. A couple of episodes ago, I had Patty McCord on, who was responsible for the Netflix culture, and and their philosophy was they write they wrote down their culture, and the culture was sort of like the Ten Commandments. It was always passed down, not in people's heads but on a piece of paper. So if they felt like something wasn't articulated correct on the paper, they would change it because that was the their culture was passed to everyone. It's interesting, isn't it? Because for most companies, their culture is this sort of ethereal thing that you can't quite touch. It's like the it's, it's an intangible asset. Yeah. And Netflix approach was very much write it down, otherwise it doesn't exist. Yes. Listen, I think a lot of business leaders will spend a lot of time writing down their strategy and they'll, they'll take their culture for granted. And, and I think that's a real mistake. I mean, Netflix has a very strong culture. Um, Brian, Brian Chesky at Airbnb says there's no such thing as a good culture or a bad culture. There are only strong and weak cultures, which I think is quite an insightful comment because you can look at Netflix and say it's, it's good or it's bad. That's a value judgment. But what you can't dispute is that it's strong. Yeah. And I know that that's what he's, he's built as well, Airbnb. And, and culture for them is a... Is a, is a hugely important thing. He said, and he says, you know, in 100 years' time, we might be doing anything. What we certainly won't be, be is a website for, for property exchanges. But what hopefully will endure is our culture. It's kind of all we've got. So let's play the interview and I'll, we'll come back and chat. This week, I went to interview Paul Dolan. Paul Dolan is an incredibly charismatic lecturer at the London School of Economics. And I think, John, you actually studied under him, is that Correct. Uh, If you're ready to be a groupie for academics, then the fact that Paul hangs around with Nobel Prize winning Daniel Kahneman, you can't help but be impressed. Uh, Add to that the fact he's a buff designer, glasses wearing bodybuilder, and he's one of those people who you know is going to be satisfying to spend time with. So uh, it was immensely generous that he gave me time to come along and talk to him and ask him about his work. So let's hear from Paul. Talking about happiness and, and work culture, and your book, probably the biggest insight for me from, from Happiness by Design, was the discussion that you said that there's a production process for happiness, and that is your allocation of time, or your allocation of attention, actually. Okay. It's a fascinatingly reductive, it's so simple that you can't help but think, yeah, okay, I get that, actually that makes a lot of sense. But how would you apply that to the world of work? Most of our attention, most of our time at work seems to be sort of stolen from us or against our will is, is that fair yeah so i mean everything is the allocation of attention as you say it's the scarcest resource there is for us because um when we pay attention to one thing we're necessarily not paying attention to something else and so the the sort of very obvious insight would be if you want to be happier at work or anywhere else is to pay attention to things that make you feel good and to not to things that make you feel bad given that that's obvious how do you do it some of the insights are again obvious but overlooked i think the biggest challenge to taking happiness research seriously, maybe much of the other research evidence seriously, is not that the, the insights themselves are surprising, although some are on occasion. It's the fact that they're not more widely adopted. For example, you know, we know that getting distracted is bad for us in a whole host of ways. It drains attentional resources. We, we uh, flip between different activities. When this, this, this idea that people multitask is absolute nonsense you can't multitask you can just single task very quickly and so your brain flits between different activities and when you do that you're tiring yourself out so you you're less efficient and less happy yet we're constantly distracted in our workplaces most people a lot of people will have email pop-ups that come up you know so they're engaged in activity bang there comes an email or better better check that out or a facebook update or a twitter feed or whatever it is we kind of don't do the things that are obvious that are obvious uh, which is to 
ensure that we are able to pay attention to one thing at a time and then to take organized breaks so taking breaks is is really helpful to us right if you um, are thinking about something challenging you might not solve the problem by thinking about it harder but you might if you go away and allow your brain to think about other things and come back to it so taking breaks are good we can think about ways in which we should organize our work days to take breaks but not to be distracted that notion that's so long gone now you know the, the notion of work when, when I used to watch it at TV as, as a kid you'd see someone had a tea break and it's yeah. almost returning to that a bit yeah. saying that you know actually here's the bit where you're going to be in flow you're going to be sort of yep. not not distracted then go and have a, a reward there and then come back to it and that's and that's yeah the old you know and but I mean email in particular in workplaces I mean I mean some people are checking their Facebook but assuming that they're not the biggest work um, distraction is email and we get floods of them they're not making us any more productive so having organized times where you you know check emails in the morning in the afternoon or evening whatever how how many times you're going to do that probably not too often and deal with them all and sort them all and then get back to productive tasks the problem is that people have expectations of you to reply quickly i get it with you know journalists for example and notoriously you know they sort of phone you 10 minutes after they've sent you an email and said have you seen my email it's like why where have we got this where have we got this expectation that we should be available <laughs> all the time for people and that's kind of what we need to sort of rein in a bit i think is sort of managing those expectations of us and of ourselves it feels so counter. It's, it's like you know, trying to resist the tsunami of change. Yeah, it is. We've got. It's a bit like um, our addiction to to the internet, to our smartphones. It's kind of like almost someone's put a, a crack dealer on every street corner, or or opened a pub on every street corner, and they're always open. You know, you, you just you're not gonna, or, or actually you're in the pub all the time, and you're so you're going to buy a pint. I mean, it, you know, it's gonna it's gonna happen even if you don't want to drink. So it's kind of having some control for organizations as much for, more more so than for individuals actually because it's very hard for us to to manage it ourselves it's for organizations and, and institutions to design environments that enable people to pay attention properly okay that's interesting then so what you sort of create you say here our culture is you know there's an expectation you'll get back in this amount of time or yeah or you won't be i mean we're not gonna we're not gonna no one's gonna i think ibm have done it uh used to do it i don't know if they still do no email fridays so there's no expectation on it on anyone's part that they will send or receive an email on a friday you could make that friday and monday yeah um you know if people want to go and talk to one another within the corporation they have to go and talk to the person or pick up a phone or whatever it is which was our old school way of communicating yeah. it's it's nicer, actually, because it's more socially engaging, but it's also more efficient because you can get something resolved quite quickly rather than bouncing emails back and forth. I can definitely see it working if you've got sort of tribal business where these 50 to 100 people in a block, and so you can wander over and chat to Gavin, and you can't come yeah. chat to Kate. If you've, if you've sort of passed a size where there's the Guildford office, there's the, the Woking office, yeah. uh, that yeah. becomes more difficult, doesn't it? Well, you pick up the phone, don't you? Right. It's really interesting. I mean, a, a couple of instances with uh, PhD students, obviously... Uh, you know, a couple of decades younger than me. And I've said, you know, give so-and-so a call because there's you know, something that's urgent, we want an answer on it. And I've asked them, had to have you called them? And they said, yeah, and I, was, I sent an email and I'm waiting for them to get back to me about when to talk to me. It's like, what? Like, well, we're sending emails to arrange phone calls. I remember, though, I once did a thing <laughs> where we, we found that, you know, a team I was working with had a low profile. And so we said, right, what we're going to do, we're always going to phone. These people were trying to get a hold of, we're always going to phone them. And I found that when we next did the next survey of how happy I am, Customers, the people we're dealing with, they were actually more unhappy. And one of the one well, of the verbatims, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> one of the verbatims was, 
Why does Simon keep fucking <laughs> <me>? <laughs> Yeah, well, there is. I'm not saying that we, we call everybody all the time. Yeah. I mean, there need to be limits to that, of course. But And, of course, the phone call is going to be a, an interruption for the person receiving it. But, yeah. but on occasion, it's more efficient. But more generally, uh, leaving, leaving aside emails or phone calls, is to have dedicated time that's put aside to dealing with administrative duties, if you like, and then, and then time also dedicated to more productive activities that are essentially the day job and when I was going through your book you you know like when you sort of you're being good and you, you write little notes you scribble on things and the things that I really sort of put a square around and wrote in the front twice was that one of the surest ways to be happier is to spend more time with happy people yeah and so I was I was fascinated with that one well it's obvious that um it's kind of obvious isn't it that if you're going to you're more likely to do something or feel something if you're surrounded by people who are also doing and feeling those things too because we're social animals and we take our cues from people around us. Everything's contagious in some sense and so is misery and happiness. Misery particularly loves company, right? So you don't, if you're going to be around miserable people, you're more likely to be sucked down yourself. But So yes, of course, surround yourself with people that essentially you enjoy spending time with. Obvious but overlooked. So most pe- a lot of people will engage in careers and strategies within their careers that involve them spending time with people that they don't actually like that much because they think that's going to be in their interest to do that for career advancement reasons or whatever. And all the while they're doing that, they're giving up time that they could otherwise be spending with people that they like. So if you're going to do that, you better be pretty damn sure that those strategies are going to pay off in the long term such that the long-term benefits that come from spending time with people that you do eventually like being with are worth the cost of spending time with people that you don't like now. One of the great, I think one of the great advantages for me, I mean, of course I have colleagues that I can't avoid on occasion but all of my research activities have been ones that I've chosen to collaborate with people that I like working with and it's a it's a very simple strategy to have and it's really interesting when students come and see me and they ask me about you know how they can advance their careers in whatever ways they're interested in doing it and I'm I look very uh, they're, they're, they're never very satisfied with my answer which is I don't really have a strategy other than just uh, enjoy what you're doing whilst you're doing it and that will give you the feedback uh, about whether to continue it or not. But I think we get lost in these narratives about where we where we ought to be and what we ought to be doing. So, so that feeling, you walk away from somewhere and you go, I really like those people. That's that's probably, it's going to result in greater happiness for you if a fair representation. Right? Yeah, I mean, we're hugely affected by our social interactions. Um, even, even introverts, um, you know, they like being around other people. They just also like time away for themselves to recharge. Yeah, time spent with people that you, that you like. If you say to someone, what makes you happy? That would be a very obvious thing to say. But it's an overlooked thing. For example, people will commute longer distances to and from work in order to earn more money to take jobs that they think in some sense might be better. But all the while they're doing that and they're on the train or they're you know, driving or whatever it is they're doing, they're, they're not spending time with people that they like being with. So there's, there's two parts I want to draw on that. So the first one you say, you said in your book that uh, a long commute correlates, especially with women, in lower psychological welfare. Yeah. So like yeah. basically a long commute creates misery, but especially creates misery for, for women. Big cities, are they inevitably, maybe a medium-sized city is the happiest place? Yeah, well, there's two things in there. One is the gender difference. Most, most of the days we, we looked at the gender differences in that paper that you're referring to, and, and most, data, most um, studies don't look at, they, they just look at average effects. Um, actually, we didn't find very much of an effect on commuting at all for men, except men that had... I think, you know, maybe a, maybe a young family or something. And that's really suggestive of... And, and it didn't have an effect on single women, but it did on all other women right. categories, like, you know, married and women with kids, which is highly suggestive of of the what happens t- to you when you get home bit after the commute, right? So 
women still pick up most of the tab of housework. So she commutes and goes home and washes the dishes. He commutes and goes home and the dishes have been washed. Um, so I think that, that partly explains the yeah. difference in commuting. Um, but generally, capital cities, to your, sec- to your second question point, um, London is miserable in comparison to the rest of the UK, and capital cities are miserable in comparison to other right. uh, cities and towns in those nations. Uh, there's a lot of reasons for that. Commuting is one. The hard work. London is a, is a, is a hard work city, right? I mean, getting anywhere that should take a very short while can take a long while. Um, that's quite stressful. Um, and uh, there's also, I think there's a lot of other things. There's um, relativities. I mean, you notice... So I worked at, um, I've worked at universities uh, in, in a few places, mostly in the north of England in my early academic life. Yeah, of course, there, is, there are income inequalities in Sheffield and Newcastle and Leeds and places that I've lived. But they weren't, weren't as obvious as they are in London, right? I mean, I'm, I'm a pretty wealthy guy, but I feel poor when I'm walking around bits of London, yeah. right? Didn't, didn't feel that in other places where, where it's less visible and noticeable. So I think there's lots of reasons why. And relative wealth actually is a, is a creature <coughs> of unhappiness, isn't it? If, if someone earns... Oh, relative, yeah. I mean, relative effects are every bit as important as absolute ones. If I got a, a 1% pay rise from the LSE and found out that everyone else got 5%, um, I mean, of course, I'm absolutely better off, but I'm relatively much worse off, and that effect would, be, would make me feel less happy than the pay rise itself. The thing in your work that you really talk about is you t- talk about for happiness, you need a balance of pleasure, this sort of hedonism, and purpose, sort of balancing those two yeah. things. And someone said to me, um, someone contacted me, and he said, uh, so how does that work? How does that affect someone who's self-employed? Mm. How does, <clears throat> you know, how do you... And <clears throat> purpose, what really is purpose? Is purpose... A lot of companies create a purpose, and sometimes they feel a bit saccharine. You know, what, what would you boil down to a, a really good example of purpose yeah so first of all i think it's important to be clear what i mean by that because the philosophical literature for two and a half thousand years is in some senses talked about purpose and meaning and um sort of higher order objectives in some sense but that's always been in the in 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 the narrative in an evaluation like my life has meaning um and you know this company has a purpose or whatever it is right I'm, t- I'm talking about it in a much more experiential sense. As we, as we live and breathe our lives, day-to-day, moment-to-moment, the things we do feel purposeful, right? So, um, you know, not having a job as a professor at the LSE, that's very purposeful. That doesn't really mean anything unless it shows up in day-to-day experiences. So I do things in my life and in my day at work that feel like they're worthwhile. Those activities that I engage in are purposeful. So it's much more experiential than any of the literature has previously discussed in terms of... Because I'm not a big fan of narratives and stories. Right, okay. I don't think we can, we can construct anything to cohere. Yeah. And the human condition is very good at making things cohere. So, so, so this, is, this is located in the experiences of our lives. And so purpose doesn't actually have to come from work. I mean, you can get purpose from uh, children, your garden, purpose from engaging in sports or... Anything that anything that you feel like is you know is kind of meaningful and worthwhile. Just for most of us, since we spend a lot of time at work anyway, um, our jobs are, the, are where we're going to get a lot of the purpose insofar as we get any. So I think it's important that we feel like you know there's nothing worse than doing anything in work or elsewhere that feels like it's a waste of time. And people mispredict that, right? They think you know I'll, I'll earn more money and that that will compensate for the fact that this job doesn't feel like it's worth it. But actually. Again, day-to-day, moment-to-moment, you're going to feel like it's pointless and it's yeah. not going to be very good even if you're taking home a high wage. 
I think it's important it's in those activities that you engage in in work that, that you have that there's a point to them that feels like they're worthwhile yeah so that's that's what we're trying to um, develop measures we've, we've got an app coming out that will enable people to monitor uh, pleasure and purpose in their daily experiences oh go on how does that work uh, literally that I mean you report whether things are feeling like they're pleasurable or purposeful as you engage in them. And also you, there's an opportunity to construct a diary, essentially, that will allow you to see how you use your time. What, so you could basically say, actually, I'm happier than I was a year ago. Based if on you had last year's data, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but you can see, I think in work, in work, you can see what things you do that feel like they're worth it. Um, and they might not always be the things that you would predict or you would construct as narratives around those things that are, that are purposeful. What's been the impact of your work on people? Um, of course, you get you get selection bias of people generally. I mean, you do get a few people that don't like you or like what you have to say, so you get a, get a few of those. But by and large, people have been hugely positive. And I think the um, the evaluation experience distinction story that I tell about my friend at Media Land, you know, having a who complains about her job when we go for dinner, every bit of her day-to-day experiences of working at Media Land were miserable, but yet at the end of dinner she says she loves working there. That's really resonated with people. Because you said in that story, so you said that you know, this, this woman sort of gave her a litany of things that she hated, yeah. but then she stayed in her job. But you said in your book that she ended up changing her no, job. No, she did quit her job. I've, I feel very proud of my you know, bit of life coaching or therapy or whatever it is has worked. She changed her job and did she's happier. Happy ending? She happy now? But, you know, it was, it was one of those... It's a lot of people who are in relationships, for example. It's not just in jobs, where they, they tell a story about the ideal person or the ideal job, and, and uh, they pay less attention to whether that idea or manifests itself in feeling happy day-to-day moment to moment sometimes they cohere but oftentimes they don't and so I'm trying what I what I'm what people are recognizing in in so far as you ask about the, the feedback and how people have changed is to is to pay more attention to to how things feel in a pleasure and purpose sense as they engage in the activities and, and to pay less attention to the stories they tell about the things that they think should make them happy yeah I think that's the overall lesson of the book isn't it that effectively your happiness it's largely determined by you. Yeah, but by what you do. Yeah. And to finish where we started, what you pay attention to. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Great. So that was a fascinating character. What was it like to study under him? Oh, yeah, he's amazing. He's, I mean, as you could tell, you know, he's, he's very distinctive, isn't he? He's got a distinctive personal brand. Yes. Yeah. Any marketer will tell you that's, that's, a, <laughs> that's a very fine thing to have. But such, such a, an expert in his field. I guess the big thing that Paul says is he says that happiness is a direct output of the decision, which is what we pay attention to. Yeah. So this notion of, of it, it really matters what you pay attention to. Uh, is kind of the main theme of his book. Um, I think it's probably, you know, the major contribution that he's made with that book is to, is to bring that notion forward and, and in such in such as a readable um, fashion. It's a fairly, as he says himself, it's kind of obvious but overlooked. Mm. Um, it, this thought that actually what you pay attention to really, really matters. But we, we, we don't do that in every day. We don't think about what we're paying attention to. We don't consciously put our attention in, 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 against different things necessarily. So we will find ourselves, I know I will, you know, on, on the on the commute, suddenly find yourself thinking about a really difficult conversation you had a couple of days ago with a client that's obviously been bugging you, and, and, and suddenly it's in your head. You haven't planned for it to be there. Because I, I thought it was spot on. It's the, it's the part of the book, uh, you underline it four times and then you scribble it in the front of the book. It's such a, a revelation. But not to cross the streams, but it seems sort of anti-therapy bit, doesn't it? I mean, I don't know if that's going too far off topic, but where therapy is something traumatic or bad happens to you and you think about it and talk about it and you process it mm. to such an extent it's spent. And he's basically saying... Don't think about bad things. Think about good things. Spend your time. Dedicate your time to good things. He is. That's, he's saying that's what drives happiness, isn't he? And he's saying surround yourself with good people or people that you enjoy spending time with. But I think I think the lessons can be um, are about more than just happiness. Yeah. From that, I think I think what you pay attention to, um, I think it's a really really strong lesson about so much in life. You know, um, because yes, some stuff you might be thinking about which makes you unhappy. Um, but some stuff you might be thinking about which is utterly irrelevant and you shouldn't be thinking about it at all because you've got a really important meeting in half an hour that you should be thinking about instead or you know or whatever it may be but but just make just paying more attention to your own thought processes is something that everyone could benefit from I don't know whether it feels like that idea then if it had come about 30 years ago would have been incredibly helpful but it seems like such a disconnection from the world we're living now. So, you know, the, the notion of continuous partial attention, that we're paying slight attention to 50 things yeah. at any point, and, you know, we're checking our messages and then we're checking something else and we're, we're using our laptops while we're watching TV, and no one's paying full attention to anything. And he basically says... That's a road to unhappiness. That is a way to end up unhappy. Yeah. And it's a bit like... Great, but how can I deal with modern right. life? Yeah. And his point that he makes in that chat there where he says, you've got to not do email. It feels like it's such a leap from where we are today. I just wonder if it's ever going to be realistic. Yeah, I think, I think that is always the challenge, isn't it? You get, um, you know, I guess what academics do is they present us with challenges. They're not necessarily the best place in the world to, to, to provide the solutions. And certainly my, my belief in, in, in workplace culture being such a strong and important thing is that, is that there aren't really any off-the-shelf solutions. Mm. You've got to find solutions within the context of your own culture. 
and your own personality as an individual as well. But you know, you take the truths from 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 scientific research, and 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 it is a truth to say that you know he says you're not you know you're you're at your happiest when you're paying full attention to something, um, and multitasking is a myth. And you know he's right on both counts. And multitasking is a, is a, is an incredibly depleting experience. So if we're as we all are in a in a, in a work environment now, you know, working harder uh, to tighter deadlines, you know, with fewer resources. That seems that seems to be the way of things. Right? Yeah. Um, how on earth can you be resilient in the face of that? And energy management is a huge uh, step forward, I think, beyond distinct distinct from time management. Um, it's an area I'm really fascinated by. It's an area I did my research in under Paul at the LSE. Um, energy management being the ability to understand what saps your energy and and take measures to control that and to and to generate energy recovery. So on the on the very subject of that, so Richard Reeves, who we had on a few episodes ago, I saw him speak and he actually didn't say in in the interview that I did with him, but he said it's not about time management that used to be like the old model of these things, or it's not about work-life balance. People are very comfortable doing a bit of work in the evening. It makes their life more satisfying or they're happier thinking about a product problem they've got while they're out for a cycle ride on Sunday. So they're happy to to mix work and and uh, leisure when it's on their terms. But Richard Reeves said it's all about energy management. It's about ensuring that you never have that sense of running on empty. And so go on, as someone who studied it, what's the solution to that, John? Well, again, it's it's quite personal. Yeah. Right. And and the, but time, but if t- if time management simply put time if time management is about organising the tasks in your day so that to Paul's point you can pay full attention to each task in turn and not constantly be distracted and try and do multiple things at once that's that's really at the you know the essence of time management and that's a that's a really you know, I wouldn't decry that that's a really really important thing um, but um, what energy management will do is uh, teach you that occasionally you should stop paying attention to any of that stuff and actually just pay attention to yourself, just just pay attention to something that either that you enjoy um, or something that's going to relax you so that you can regenerate your energy, so that you can be energised for, for what for what lies next. And that, that could be as little as, you know, just a couple of minutes looking out the window at a park. That right. To be just so that's sort office. of what Paul was saying, like the tea break philosophy, that there's some ancient wisdom in the idea that people would take a pause from anything. Yeah, um, we don't do it enough. That's the, that's the fact of the matter. And that, again, it's down to workplace cultures not supporting it um, in the main. Um, so we, once upon a time, the tea break was an institutionalised yeah. thing, right? You know, you'd probably go on strike if you didn't get one. Yeah. <laughs> but today, you know, people do still take a break to make a cup of tea, but literally that's all they'll do. They'll go to the, you know, the kitchen probably and make a cup of tea, maybe have a little chat to someone while they're doing it and then go back to their desk. They won't go and sit for five, ten minutes and, you know, read a magazine or yeah. contemplate the, the world or just have a, or just have a chat. It doesn't tend to happen. And while that's not for everybody, that sort of break can, can be can be very positive for, for energy levels. So someone catching a quick look at the gossip on the sidebar of shame, actually like taking a look at that could be a good thing for their productivity. Then. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you've got to, the discipline is required. So I think I think the danger with energy management, even as I'm articulating it now, is it could sound like a shirker's charter because basically it's saying taking breaks is good for you. But obviously, if you take loads of breaks all the time, um, that's that's not so good for productivity. But taking taking 
you know, disciplining yourself to take small breaks and understanding what within those breaks, what activities within those breaks is going to help you relax or, or actually is going to energize you. And then being disciplined enough to stop, you know, end the break and go back to your work. That is something that not only makes you happier, but does, um, at the evidence would suggest, does try productivity. Right. OK. So I just wonder how you could turn that into, into reality. So Because it, the one thing that you might say about Paul's work when you listen to it, is that he's got a slightly unrealistic, sort of idealised version of what work might be like, but that you basically say, I'm going to do these compartments, and most people would say, well, yeah, well, tell that to my boss when he comes along and he does this, or tell that to my boss when I get dragged into a three-hour planning meeting. And so if he has an idealised version of work, then... Practically, how do you do those breaks? Do you do it like school? There's a bell goes and everyone, <laughs> everyone goes and messes around on the roof for 20 um, minutes? Definitely not. Back to what I talked about a little bit earlier is, is um, autonomy is, is, is a very, very important factor. Right. Uh, particularly when it comes to people who use their brain to work. So, you know, if you're, if you're on a factory floor, then a bell going and having a break, you know, for a, certain, you know, a shift being over, that works. But if you're in charge of your own workload, which most, you know, knowledge workers, so-called, you know, are people who basically white-collar workers, one of a better way of looking at it, you, if, you, if you start to, you know, institute breaks at certain times, you'll be interrupting a train of thought, you'll be right. preventing them from hitting a deadline that, that, that a particular client has demanded of them. There's all sorts of reasons why you wouldn't do that. But creating a culture where breaks are not only permitted but encouraged, designing an environment, you know, admittedly this is now incurring cost, but designing an environment where you can, actually there's, a, there's, a, there's an area where you can go for breaks. There's also an area where you can go for focused work. There's an area for collaboration. You know, work environments are very, very important in, in promoting and generating these sorts of things. So, so a lot of this sort of leads to, um, I remember when I was at a job, a long time ago, and I used to enjoy, as my sort of interruption to what was going on, going to chat to some of the journalists over the other side and reading the gossip pages of the Sun. And, you know, it was like a great distraction. They, they used to have newspapers delivered there. It was a, a good punctuation to my day until someone said to me, have you got nothing to do? And I, f I never did it again. I never went over. Sometimes I'd sneak a look at their their newspapers, but we, without anyone observing me. And almost what you're saying is that a company, if they wanted to stimulate this, whether it's like a, a group that meets that discusses last night's Westworld or EastEnders or TV show of choice, that's actually not a bad thing. Yeah, I think, I think you know, in the, in the instance that you've just described, you know, I would think if you had a strong enough culture that, 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 that had um, carved out the reason why breaks are good for you you'd simply be able to respond to that person i'm on a break right and that should be enough but yeah i, I mean allowing people the opportunity and, and, and again encouraging uh, that they did that they that they do common, talking about common interests you know little, little groups however big or small that, that meet to talk about common interests yeah that's a that's a great thing i mean it's obviously great because it bonds people in different ways uh, which is a, which is important to team cohesion, but it also provides a break. Talking about stuff you're passionate about that isn't work, you know. Thinking back to that that thing that Paul said about paying attention to something makes you happy. If you can be if you enjoy something enough that you will be absorbed, your attention will be absorbed when you're when you're talking about it or you're listening to other people talking about it. That that provides you with a break. 
And so to square the, the, the two things we talked about there, so writing that down, writing down that breaks are good. Mm -hmm. So like it's clear that everyone, our culture is breaks are good. So consequently, I would have been able to say to the, the man who chased me away from that day's newspapers, I'd have been able to point him to the rule breaks are good. Exactly. We did a survey for, for the research I did at LSE, and, and I was quite surprised that only 10% of people actively exercise on a regular basis during the work during the working day, you know, and, and, and even fewer than that just go for a walk around the block, which, you know, just going for a walk around the block is is, is, is a fairly, you know, it's, it's quite easy to do, isn't mm. it? you know, and actually that's better than reading a newspaper in yeah. the canteen because no one's actually going to come and tell you what the hell you're doing because you're, you're out of the building. Um, but, but so few people do that because we do have this sort of addiction to being at our desk, being seen, uh, and being seen to work. And so talk me through your business, the decision practice. So what do you do? How do you help companies? So um, I guess first and foremost, what I do with companies is I help them identify what their culture is. When, when, when companies talk about their values, they will be, in my experience, values that you know, the CEO decided they should have. And I don't think that works. That's, they're just going to plaque you know, on the side of the, on the wall somewhere and no one really observes them or, re or understands them. So every business has a culture. So I work with businesses to do surveys and interviews and obs observations and, and understand, okay, so these, this is how people are. This is, the, and this is what people value within your business and therefore these are the values of your business. And obviously that's trying to um, identify the positive stuff because there's nearly always, you, there will be positive stuff to, to, to build upon. Um, but at the same time, you know, what we might do is also identify behaviours that, that um, actually are breaking those values. So once you've agreed that those are the values and that they actually do marry with the, um, the vision of the, of, the, of, the, of the founders, if you like, or of the, of the leaders of the business, it's then a case of saying, well, OK, let's go, let's go back down into, to, up to the ground level and let's identify what, those, what sort of behaviours we really want to see uh, and again, involving people in identifying that so that they can police their own values so that no one ever comes up to you and says, what the hell are you doing? You know, have you got no work to do? Because they know that uh, energy management is one of our, is one of our values. And, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a dynamic process, but it has to be both sort of endorsed and led from the top, but, but, but come from um, the shop floor. And, and, and once you've got a values-led culture, you know, you don't need as much process. Yeah. I, I really believe in that, you know. I really believe that writing things down that are truthful and recognisable and also communicating them are vital. The, the pet I, I used to have when I started this job, I used to hate when people used to say to someone leaving at 4.30 or 5 o'clock, I used to hate when they said half day mm. because firstly it's pernicious, you know, like anyone who's getting up and leaving is already conscious of the fact they're leaving and there's probably a legitimate reason, but it especially impacts on people who've got child care responsibilities. And almost always those people are, are diligent to the point of ensuring that they make up the time elsewhere, or they're already conscious of the fact they start at 7.30 and no one notices that. And so those things, so I used to make sure people knew that the only cultural no-no was to say half day to someone who was leaving early. Because I don't care if someone's going to play football or yoga, you know, normally those people are so desperate to demonstrate that they're doing the four weeks work that they'll make up the time elsewhere. But it's just, you know, it's a, it's a casual, it's a boorish, it's a lazy thing for someone to say half day. And writing those things down prevents that. It does. And it means people police each other. 
So you wouldn't have to be on hand to hear that comment mm. and call that person out. Other colleagues, hopefully, would 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 do that instead. And and as long as it benefits everybody and everyone's bought into it, that's that's the point about making it uh, inclusive and involving people in defining those values and behaviours. Because well, you've 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 identified them, so now you you have to sign up to them. And then as you recruit more people, you're recruiting them into a culture where everybody believes this stuff yeah. and everybody lives this stuff so so it's much easier to assimilate new people great well i've loved having you on john so the decision practice how long have you been running it uh well i, I finished my course at the lsa at the end of last year so it's been sort of a part-time uh, operation until january of this year so i am uh, up and running and uh, open for business fantastic Great. Well, I hope you have a good year this year. Thank you very much, John, for coming on. Really appreciate it. Please send me uh, your comments. You can tweet me at Bruce Daisley or you can add comments on iTunes. Please subscribe on iTunes. iTunes ask us to say that. And thank you very much. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.